0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, it'll be on the screen behind me in your bulletin. Uh, Also, you can grab a pew Bible or look on with uh, your neighbor, perhaps. Judges chapter 9, I had forgotten just how dark uh, this passage was until I jumped into it uh, this week. In Judges 9, we have something completely different. Something completely different than we've seen up until this point in our study in Judges. We have here, and you'll notice, it doesn't start like the rest of the passages. There is a complete departure from the cycle of the Judges that we see week in and week out in our study. In every situation, Israel has been attacked and the problem has come from foreign enemies. From the people on the outside. This morning in Judges chapter 9, the problem actually comes from the inside. The problem's no longer the foreign foreign enemies, but it's from their own ruler, a man by the name of Abimelech, Gideon's son. And almost every commentator points out, and you'll see it as we read through here, is the name of the Lord, uh, the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh, and in your Bible you note it by, it's printed in all caps, the word LORD. It's nowhere to be found in Judges chapter 9. You see, Abimelech is a picture of a man and a society that have cut God out of their lives. This is a terrible moment and a very low moment in Israel's history. And I think you'll see what I mean as we read Judges chapter 9 this morning. And remember, even Passages like this are part of God's very word. So follow along with me as I read. Uh, Starting in chapter 9, I'll just read 1 through 6, and then we'll skip down uh, to verse 42 and following. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, remember this is Gideon. It's another name for Gideon. We learned that earlier in our study. Went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf and in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-Belreth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together at beth And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. Now down to verse 42. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sold it with salt. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Belreith and Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went to Mount Zalman, he and the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it and laid it on his shoulders. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. And so every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died. About a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebez and encamped against Thebez and captured it. And there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it. And drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say to me, of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. Upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Chapter 10. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. Let me pray and ask God to help us this morning with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, This is a very difficult passage, and I pray that you would come through your spirit and that you would show us something about ourselves, but show us once again the relentless grace that you have for your people. Show us again the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Uh, One of the difficult things about uh, the book of Judges, you've probably picked up on this, i uh, just give you a little insight into my world every week. But these are very long narratives, and they're action-packed. There is lots of things going on in these passages, and because of that, it makes it very tra- challenging to teach and preach a book like Judges, because teaching and preaching, one of the things that you try to do is clarify and bring to light uh, the unity of the passage. Uh, you try to uh, bring a-, a sense of cohesion so that it actually makes sense to us And not only that, you take the passage from their world and we try to apply it to our world in 2018. And so what's the theme is one of the questions that I often ask as I begin looking at a passage. And when we look at this passage closely, you'll see a theme running through the entire narrative. And it's this idea that Abimelech is driven by a need for control. All Abimelech wants to do is get in control and stay in control at whatever the cost. Look at verse 54 if you picked up on it. He's so controlling, he even wants to control the way he dies at the end of his life in verse 54. If we were to put it in our terms, today we might say that Abimelech is a control freak. Or we might even say he's a narcissist. And we look at our own life, and yes, as we think about our world, it might not manifest itself to the point that we see in Abimelech in this passage, but every single one of us, if we're honest, are committed in some way, shape, or form to controlling our own lives this morning, aren't we? Again, it might not look the same, But we're all committed in some way to controlling our own lives. If we're honest, it might be for you pervasive worry and constant worry and anxiety that keeps you up at night. Or it might be for you road rage. That you're calm, cool and collect when you're outside of a vehicle. You know these people and then you like go to lunch with a person and you're like, who is this person? They suddenly become very controlling. Or maybe you're afraid of failure. And so it manifests itself in your life with excessive preparation and excessive studying for assignments and projects. Maybe you lie and control people's perceptions of you because you're trying to control your image, or there's no flexibility in your schedule, or it's constant cleaning of the home, or maybe it's helicopter parenting. We're all committed to these things in some way, shape, or form. All of those things I mentioned are symptoms of the fact that we desperately want control. And yes, some people might struggle more than others, but deep down, all of us to some degree are committed to controlling our own lives. We all have control issues, don't we? Remember, Judges teaches us something about ourselves and something about God. And so this morning, we're going to look at Abimelech's control issues and see if we can learn something about our own control issues. We're also going to see, once again, the relentless grace of God for his people. Three things this morning. Why we grasp for control. Secondly, what is the result of being controlling and manipulative. And thirdly, how do we change? How do we grow in this area? So why, what, and how? Let's look at the first point. Why do we grasp so quickly for control of our lives? Well, look at verses 1 through 3. You'll see, let me just summarize this, but basically Abimelech sets out this plan to manipulate his own people to make him king. He essentially, basically says this, I don't want to scare you, but 70 sons of Gideon, that's a lot of people ruling over you, that's going to be really chaotic and I'm not sure you want to do that. There is a simpler way we could do this. This is what Abimelech is saying, just have one of Gideon's sons rule over you and that would be me. Not only that, remember, I'm, I'm part of your family, that we're related, and don't forget that blood is thicker than water. See the manipulation there? And so they eventually agree. The city leaders give him uh, some money from the temple. from uh, It's pagan money. And he goes, and the first thing he does is hire a group of thugs to get his back as he travels around. Reckless fellows, the text tells us. And his first act in order of business is to immediately go to Ophrah and kill Gideon's 70 sons. In verse 6, that was enough. And they install him as the king. And what I want you to see here is the lust for power. I want you to see the lust for control. I want you to see... He's manipulating his own family and he's preying on the people's fears so that they will make him king. Why? Not because he has the best interest of the people in mind, but because he wants to destroy his 70 brothers and ensure that he has control and he will keep control. I want you to think about this in light of our study this fall through the book of Judges. In every other case that we've seen thus far, who is it that calls the judges? It's God who calls the judges. And those people most of the time don't want to be called, <laughs> and God has to stay after them and convince them that He's calling them, not here. Abimelech wasn't appointed by God. He simply asserts himself to the role. You see, Abimelech, we see a, in Abimelech, we see a lust for control and power. And a willingness to do anything and everything to keep it and to get it. And he's willing to get rid of anyone that stands in his way. And here's the question I want us to look at is why. What's driving his need for control? What's behind it? And in a word, it's fear. We get a clue in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Did you notice it seems a little bit uh, kind of a, a side comment But it says that he went to the relatives on his mother's side. Why would they specify that? He didn't have to say that, the narrator. But he does. Well, because if you read in chapter 8, verse 31, if you have a Bible, you can look up there. We learn that Abimelech was the only one of Gideon's son that's born of a concubine. And so you've got 70 brothers that were in charge that were from the other side of the family. And they were ruling over him. And so, if that were you, how would that make you feel if you had 70 people from the other side of your family ruling over you? Vulnerable, fearful, unsafe. That's what we see going on with Abimelech. And so, here's the principle whatever you're deeply afraid of, whatever it is in your life that you're deeply afraid of, you will t- try to take control of that area of your life to ensure that fear does not become a reality. Think about your own life. Why are you controlling and manipulative in your marriage? Why are you controlling or manipulative in a dating relationship? Well, because deep down you have a fear of being alone. You have a fear of someone walking out and abandoning you. Why are you so controlling about people's perceptions of you? Well, because we're afraid that if they really knew us, they would want nothing to do with us. Why are you so controlling at work? We're controlling at work because we fear being seen and looking incompetent. And I know this next one here, I know it's way more complicated than this, so know that I know that. But think about body image issues and eating disorders. What is the root of body, issue, body image issues and eating disorders? The root of those things is fear. And we could say this about a lot of areas, but we're talking about food here. But life seems out of control and chaotic. And so what happens in our lives is we look for one area that we can get some sort of control over. And sometimes that's food, and food becomes the thing that we can control, and it brings a sense of order to the chaos. You see that? It brings a sense of order and control to the fear and to the unknown and to the chaos that we feel in the world around us. If it's parenting, and maybe you are controlling and manipulating your children, why do we do that? Because we're afraid, because I'm afraid. That they won't turn out the way that I want them to. And when they don't turn out the way that I think they should. Or the way um, that I want them to. Then that comes back and it's a reflection on who? It's fear. It's, it's a reflection on me too. I'm afraid that I'm going to look bad in some way. And so here's what I want you to see. Pull up at 30,000 feet. And what do you see in common? All, what do all these examples I just mentioned. What do they have in common? Who's at the center of all of those fears that I just mentioned? I am. You are. We're at the center. Here it is. Control and manipulation. Wherever that is in your life. Wherever you are being controlling in your life this morning. That is a warning light on the dashboard of your life. That is revealing your own selfishness. It's actually revealing to you that you are making life all about you. You see, underneath the control is fear. Wherever it is that you're grasping for control in your life, that will reveal your fear. And if you want to grow in being controlling and manipulative, you've got to face your fear. You've got to deal with your heart. The fear inside your heart, and you've got to deal with your selfishness. That's the first point. Secondly, uh, what's the result of being controlling and manipulative? Well, we don't have to work hard... (laughs) To see the result of Abimelech's control and his power and uh, lusting after those things. And we'll kind of walk through the narrative. We didn't read this portion, but look at verse 22 and we'll just walk through this. Uh, It's a very short part of the narrative because it didn't last long. But for three years, things apparently went well under his rule. But boy, for the most part, his rule was a complete train wreck. Tensions begin to develop between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Notice the people of Shechem were the very people that made him and wanted him to be their king. In verse 34 and following, a guy named Gael shows up with his family, starts living in Shechem. He doesn't like Abimelech. And so he starts gathering up support in order to make a revolt against him. And Abimelech gets word of this, and he doesn't like it. Why? Because his power and control is being threatened. And so it's very clear, but Abimelech snaps. He completely comes unglued. He doesn't just kill Gael, but he takes down instead the entire city of Shechem. He doesn't stop there. He gets word that the leaders of Shechem are all gathered together in a house or tower of some sort. And he essentially locks them inside and burns it to the ground. Killing a thousand people. A thousand men and women. We could go on, but do you see the results and the dangers of control and manipulation? And again, now the result of our control and arrogance and pride, they're not near as devastating probably as what we're seeing here in this passage. But it does destabilize our life, doesn't it? Doesn't our controlling nature and uh, manipulation, doesn't it destabilize our life and have a negative impact on us and those around us? It does, doesn't it? Just think about what happens when you try to control your life. Think about, let's just use some of the examples that we've used previously. If you're a control freak and manipulative in your marriage, you will look into the eyes of your wife or husband And there will be no joy. You know, when you look into someone's eyes and it appears like you're looking into an empty shell. That's what it'll be like. Or when your children walk into the home. They'll be deathly afraid and walking on eggshells. Or if you're constantly always controlling people's perceptions of you. That will actually turn on you and start controlling you. Because if you're so concerned with other people's perceptions, what do you end up happening? If that's ruling your life, you'll end up paranoid, worried, anxious, and always on edge. Worrying about what people think of you. And so, it actually starts controlling you in a sense. If you're controlling and manipulative in the workplace, no one will want to work for you. And there will be no joy in your office. Parenting. You're controlling and manipulative with your children. Ephesians 4 says exasperating your children. They will hate you. They will resent you. They will be angry with you and never want to come home. And that too ends up turning on you. Because soon you find out that you're only happy when they're happy. And when they have a bad day, guess who else has a bad day? You see how it starts actually controlling you. But you see something else in this story that I want us to see. That it's not an accident. And it sounds like a really random verse. But I think it's God's way of saying, I'm in control. Look at verse 53. You might look and think this is sheer coincidence. (laughs) I love the way it's phrased. A certain woman happens to have a millstone around her neck. And just happens to be on this crowded rooftop at the tower of Thabez. And just happens to be placed above the door in just the right time. In just the right place. When Abimelech happens to approach the door to set the place on fire. And she just happens to drop the millstone in just the right way. So that it hits, it hits him in the skull. And then look at verse 56. God adds his commentary. And God returned the evil of Abimelech, which, com- which he committed against his fathers and killing his 70 brothers. You see, though God, he might be silent in this narrative. In other words, his name, as I mentioned, is not there. But friends, God is not absent here. Abimelech thinks he's in control. He's not. God is in control. And he's always at work, working his purposes, and he's accomplishing his purposes in the world, demonstrating his control over all things. And here's the point. Friends, control. Whatever control you think you have in this life is an illusion. And if you insist on living in that illusion, you will make a mess of your life and the world around you. Abimelech wanted safety and control. He wanted to control all the variables, but he couldn't control all the variables because the world and ultimately is uncontrollable. He lives in the same world that we live in. And we can't control all the variables either because we're not God and we can't control the future. And we know this is true to some degree, don't we? When we really step back and slow down enough to think about it, you can't guarantee that your loved ones won't die. You can't guarantee that. You cannot guarantee that you can control your surroundings if you're single this morning. You can't guarantee that you will get married. You can't. You can't guarantee, parents, that your children, no matter what techniques you use in shepherding a child's heart and all those things and saying just the right thing and making all the right moves, again, the proverb says there's a good chance they will turn out well, but we can't promise that, can we? We know plenty of people, maybe even in our own families, where we thought we've done it right, and our kids still not, did not turn out the way that we wanted to them to or the way we thought they would. You can't ultimately control how they will turn out. You can't control your health. We know stories of people that, who are the poster people of health. They run marathons and they're in the best shape of anybody you've ever seen. And you read about them in the newspaper of dropping dead of a heart attack. You can't control your wealth. The stock market has dropped over 10% in the last month. And you can't do a thing about it. You can't work out enough in order to guarantee that your body will look a certain way. I had a friend once tell me, you can't outwork genetics. And there's some truth to that, and you know there's truth to that. You see, when you're stressed and when you're anxious and in a particular situation, and I know this sounds really obvious, but we miss the obvious. One of the questions we should always ask in whatever's stressing you out this morning, I do this all the time. I walk into Susie, I'll be on edge, I'll be stressed, I'll be worried about something, and she'll ask me this question, and I'll be like, well, why didn't I think of that? And here's the question. What about this situation can you actually control? What are you stressed about this morning? What's causing you to get angry? What about this situation can you actually control? You see how that gives you perspective? Because when you start thinking about it, you realize almost 100% of the time that you control very little. And it's actually a scary thought, isn't it? On how little of your life that you actually are in control of But at the same time, it also brings tremendous freedom. It brings freedom. I had a story of a mom uh, once who, her son was in the Superman, the superhero phase. And so Batman, Spider-Man, everything superhero, costumes, capes, masks, toy weapons, the whole nine yards, and he was convinced that he was a superhero. One night, she's sitting on the couch with her young son and getting ready to take him to bed and... He leans over and he says, Mom, I'm really not a superhero. And I love that story because he really thought he was letting her in on something. You know, God has to feel the exact same way. We come to God and we say, God, my life feels like it's so out of control. I'm not in control of anything. And God finally comes and says, finally, you're living in reality. You're right. You're not in control and you never have been. And my question is do you know that this morning? Do you know that? Friends, our comfort this morning is knowing that God is in control and that a good and gracious God holds all things in his hand. And when we lean into that and actually acknowledge that, it leads to freedom. It frees you to actually rest and relax, you stress less. You sleep better. You're actually a joy to be around rather than uh, no one wants to be with you. You actually are able to enjoy life. You're actually able to enjoy the people that God's put in your life, namely your family, and you're able to love and serve and be with them rather than trying to control and manipulate them all the time. You see, if we're ever going to grow, in this area and be less controlling and less manipulative we must acknowledge that control is an illusion that God is in control and um, if we're ever going to to grow in this we must acknowledge that and if we insist on living in the illusion we will make a mess of our lives and a mess of the world around us so how do we grow in this how do we change last point quickly Look at uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. I love this. And I wanted to put this I, I didn't put it on, in at the beginning of the week, but I put it in towards the end because I wanted us to see how good God is. I wanted us to see the amazing... It's Reformation Sunday. One of the pillars of the Reformation is grace. You see the relentless grace of God here. Think about this passage. Abimelech's a train wreck. His rule is a train wreck beginning of chapter 10, God raises up Tola to save Israel from itself. God is saying to His people, the people who have completely abandoned Him, who have chose to follow, follow a man who has made Himself king, and did you notice here? They're not even crying out. Israel's not even crying out for help. There, there's no ounce of repentance here. And God saves them anyway. God says, I'm committed to you. I haven't left you. I am still with you. And isn't that exactly what we need this morning as well? We need a leader, don't we? Who will help rescue us from ourselves. Who will help rescue us from our own hearts, from our own control and failings and issues of ambition. And centuries later, what we see is that this God of relentless grace... Puts on flesh and comes down into the world in the person of Jesus. And here's what doesn't make sense. He's God. And yet, we see that he wasn't a control freak. Think about Jesus. Arrested, bound, at the mercy of Roman soldiers. And Jesus at any moment could have resumed control and wiped them off the face of the earth. That's essentially what he says in Matthew chapter 26. I can call down my angels at any time and take care of this. He didn't. He's before Pilate. And Pilate says, what's your response to these charges against you? Jesus didn't even attempt to talk his way out of it. He says nothing. He doesn't assert his control. He doesn't devise a strategy. He gives up his control. And he goes to a cross, and his father, God the Father, pours out his wrath and forsakes him. And on the cross, Jesus says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken forsaken me?" You see what's happening? See, on the cross, Jesus is getting what every narcissist and controlling person like us deserves: life by himself. Completely abandoned and away from God and others. And so why would God give up control? Well, in short, to be your substitute. You see, that's what salvation is. Salvation is God substituting himself for man. And it's at the cross that we see this demonstration of God's love and goodness. And the more we lean into the cross and live a cross-centered life and see God's love for us... The more we'll be able to trust God with our life. You see, when we look at the cross, it is evidence, objective evidence, that we can trust God with our life, that we can uh, trust that He has our best interest in mind. It's proof that He loves us and that He. Uh, Will do anything to be with us. And that he knows what he's doing with our life. And he knows exactly where you are today. And it might be in a really hard spot. But God knows you're there. And he has you there. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism is a summary of what the Bible teaches. in, In the Heidelberg Catechism question one. The question is what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that you are not your own. That you belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. And He preserves your life in such a way that without the will of your heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from your head. Not a hair can fall from your head. Indeed, all things must work together for the good of my salvation. I read a story this week about a sailor who in the 1700s spent his life sailing uh, the Atlantic. He was on his last voyage uh, before settling in America because he was engaged. And his fiance was with him uh, on this particular trip. And a huge storm arose out of nowhere. Very fierce waves coming into the boat. Sky pitch black. All you could see was the lightning lightning. Coming through. And so his fiance comes out from the bottom of the boat and she's weeping. She's scared and she's screaming, We are going to die. And the man who is trying to comfort his fiance says, No, 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 God will see us through. And the fiance says, How do you know God will see us through? And the man draws out a sword and he puts it to her throat. And he says, Are you afraid? And she says, No, I'm not afraid. And and he says, Why not? And she says, I know the heart behind the hand. The same is true with God, he said. I know the heart behind the hand. You see, it's at the cross of Jesus that you can see the heart behind the hand for whatever it is that's going on in your life this morning and you can trust him and his plan for your life. Because of the cross, you can stop controlling your life. Because of the cross, you can stop controlling your children and trust that God loves your children more than you do. Because He does. You can trust um, and stop controlling people's perceptions of you because at the cross you see that you've got the approval and the love of the only person that really matters. You see, faith in God allows you to release control of your life and to live in the chaos. Faith in God allows you to release control and live in the unknown because the heart of the one that is steering the world deeply loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your covenant love for us. Forgive us for often leaving you. Forgive us for not trusting you and trusting and trying to control our lives. Would you give us the grace this morning and the courage to confront our selfishness and fear? Would you give us wisdom, give us proper perspective of our lives so that we might live in more freedom and joy? Help us to really believe that you do preserve our life in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head um, and that without you knowing it, and that all things work together for the good of our salvation. Give us the faith to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.